storyteller. Now, a person who tells stories, or the My Way podcast with Michael Nix. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new and improved season two My Way podcast. And today we have a fantastic guest with us today. We have the CEO of Simple Bank, Joshua Reich, with us today. Now, some people may want to open a bakery. Other people may want to open, I don't know, a shoe store. But what Joshua did, he said, you know what? I think I'm going to open a bank. Let's just let that sit there for a second. Open a bank. Now, what we have today is Joshua's story from beginning to, I almost said end, up until fairly recently of him starting this bank, Simple Bank, from the ground up. So sit back, relax, and maybe while you're setting up your Simple Bank account, take a listen to this interview. I hope you enjoy it. So we're going to play a word association game. So I'm going to say a word, and we'll see what you come up with. All right, so thrill. Sounds like fun. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Thrill. Uh, thrill seeker. Safety. Net. Performance. Art. Accomplishment. Effort. Superiority. Complex. Truth. I wonder what this is telling you about me. I, everybody <laughs> always asks that. Like, is there like a big reveal at the end? I'm like, no. I'm like, I just like to see what people come up with. Can, um, can I fail this test by any chance? You can't. You can't. Okay. Uh, good. Truth. The truth is out there. Success. Uh, failure. New. Old. Money. Savings. Failure. Happens. All right, there you go. So now we're going to move into either or questions. So I'll say cat or dog, and then you can decide from there. All right. Joe. Steve Jobs, Henry Ford, or Walt Disney? Um, can I choose none of the above? They, I think they're all jerks. Okay. Who would you, if, do you have anyone in mind, any inspir- inspiring Feynman, people? But he was a jerk as well in some ways, but I'll go with Richard Feynman. Okay. Cash or check? Cash. New York or Portland? Portland. Hot or cold? Weather hot, drinks cold. Coffee or tea? Well, Diet Coke would have to be the answer following my drinks cold comment. (laughs) So I'm breaking all the rules. You're you're all right. You're all right. Okay. And some people don't know how to answer this one, but mother or father? Uh, I'm going to treat that as word association and call it parents. Okay. So if I were to ask your parents to describe you as a child, what do you think they would say? Um, I was a pretty curious child. Um, I liked taking things apart. I think I was a, a troublemaker. But curious would probably be the, um, the, the, the most positive light to put me in. So when you say troublemaker, do you mean like break windows or... Be a little lippy. No, I telephones. I, I, I take pretty much anything electronic around the house. I take it apart. Um, so I was curious about how things worked. I think some of my earliest childhood memories of me using like, masking tape to tape various pieces of things together and just See causing havoc. Yeah. So to start, 
let us talk about a little company called DataServe. So this is a company sure. that five of your friends started in like 1990 or 1989, something like that. Yeah, around that ballpark. Um, okay. So it wasn't five of us who started it. I started it with a friend and then we acquired another oh, group okay. of technicals. Okay. Well, because I went to the website. I think it's dataserve.org. And it's described Correct. as a quote-unquote fictitious company. So right. what exactly did DataServe do in this fantasy world? So it, it was fictitious in the sense that we, we, we were 10 years old, but we, yeah. we, we wrote software. Um, and so we wrote a few different things with software. Um, I was interested in electronics and software. Um, and probably the most thing that we produced was paperwork and documentation and mm. board meeting minutes and, and, and things like that. Um, well, now that yeah. you say board meeting minutes, I did go through and I read the minutes for the 1990 oh, annual general meeting. And I have something I want to read to you. So okay. It, it says, and I quote, Joshua said that he had sold an inventory program to Video Classrooms Australia for four ninety five. He also indicated he had written Grapher 9.5 and update to a simple high-level mathematician's language. An unidentified attendee noted that he had, quote-unquote, been sucked into the chaos theory. Luke pointed out that Joshua, therefore, must be the sucky. Joshua also had the meeting, also told the meeting that he had produced null modem cables and plans to make a robot. I don't even know what null modem cables are. But I can tell to, you how much time do we have. So uh, back in the day, however long you want. So back in the day, you know, you'd have a serial port and a parallel port on most computers, um, and to connect one computer to another computer, you needed to make something called a null modem cable. You'd switch over the receive and the transmit line, so you could make a basic network before sort of networking was a thing for computers to talk to each other. Oh, okay. And so I was trying to build a network out of like two computers using null modem cables. Okay. So what was your perception of yourself around like 13 to 15? Pretty nerdy. Um, and it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. So around the same yeah. time, 13 to 15, what did you think you wanted to do for a career? Or did you really even think about careers at that age? Either physics or computers. Those were the two things I was really nerding out at at that point. Um, I was part of a program called the Physics Olympiad program where, you know, there'd be that annual competition each year and I was really into that. Um, but I was also really into computers and electronics. Um, so something in the sciences or in the, the, the computer world is probably where I thought I'd end up. So jumping ahead slightly, you originally went to medical school, right? And Correct. while studying medicine, you were still involved in the tech sphere slightly. You didn't just kind of push it away while you're in medical school. Yeah, so I, I worked part-time jobs. Um, uh, in my first year of medical school, I worked as a systems engineer and was a hobbyist throughout medical school and then took a year off and, and worked as a systems engineer and then worked at a, a film post-production company writing software um, for animations and stuff. So I'm assuming with today's vantage points, you feel you made the right decision to stop going to medical school? But I the, don't know. Look, No? Okay. For me, um, you know, I, I left medical school like with one year to go and it's a long program and I think I've always had a chip on my shoulder for, for not finishing it. Um, I miss the fact that I don't get to 
had that person-to-person interaction and helping people. That, that, that was a huge thing that, that kept me going throughout medical school. But I, I think, you know, having that chip on my shoulder for, for not getting things done um, has actually been probably a positive for me. Um, it, it's meant that I, I've, I've always had this sense of not wanting to give up. And I think if you're looking at, at what we're doing with Simple, um, it's a really, it was a really hard business to start. Um, and there were a lot of opportunities where it would have been really easy to give up. Um, but having that chip on my shoulder meant that um, I, I didn't want to give up. So, And you have a father and two sisters in the medical field, right? Correct. So what did your father think of you leaving medical school? Um, he wasn't too happy with it. I actually left medical school twice. I left once after six months and um, transferred to a math degree. And when my parents found out, I transferred back. Um, they weren't super annoyed. They were like, you know, is this something you really want to do? A lot of people, you know, give up in their first year. You know, maybe you should stick through it. And like the dean of the medical program, you know, gave me a similar talk. And so I signed back up again. And then after, you know, five years later, I left again. And at that point, it was pretty clear um, that it wasn't you know, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. for me. So I decided to look up some information on Australia before we sat down. And sure. the first page of search results was all about the wealth in Australia, how Australians have less public debt than, you know, Americans or et cetera, et cetera. So why did you leave off Australia? I even saw an article that said it was the new land of opportunity. Well, yeah, a lot of that is probably coming to an end right now with what's going on with the Chinese economy, um, which really has bolstered the Australian market. But, you know, I, I left uh, Australia really because I was interested in technology. I was interested in innovation. I'd sort of been a, a minor participant in sort of dot-com version one. And I wanted to come to America because it's sort of the land of innovation, the land of doing cool things with technology. And I'd spent at that point um, a couple of years working in software. I was the CTO uh, of a marketing analytics firm. And I wanted to learn more about business. I wanted to learn more about ways I could apply my interest in mathematics and statistics to to the field of business. So I decided to come to Carnegie Mellon um, to do their MBA program. They have a very nerdy MBA program. They don't like being called a very nerdy MBA program, but that's exactly what they do well. And so I came to, to do that. Any desire to go back? To Australia? Yeah. Um, I, I miss the beaches. I miss my friends. I miss my family. But I've been here for 11 years now, and this feels like home. Okay. So what do you think about competition, personal or professional? Yeah, I think probably my biggest competitive drive comes against myself. I think I hold myself to very high standards. Um, you know, people ask me, uh, you know, we've obviously had – in the, in the world of startups, being doing something for six years is a long time. You know, tell me, people have asked me, tell me about the times when you felt like you've had a success. And every time I think we, we succeed, all I'm thinking about is the next thing that we need to do. Um, and so I think probably my biggest drive for competition comes from what we're doing. Thinking about it from a business, from the business perspective, our biggest competitors, you know, are where our customers are coming from. They're coming from the large banks and, and joining Simple. Um, I'm not too worried about the large banks because, you know, for a bunch of reasons, um, I think our best competitive drive comes from from ourselves. So you as an individual, you wouldn't call yourself a competitive man? I am, but I, I, I think I'm competing against myself. Okay. So yeah. I'm, I know you've told this story multiple times, but tell me how the idea for Simple 
how it popped into your head. And it's been a couple of years, so feel free to romanticize it if you want to. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, so as I was saying, I came from Australia to America uh, to go to Carnegie Mellon. And one of the first things I had to do is like, I arrived like a month before school started and I needed to find an apartment. I needed to get, you know, a bank account. I needed to get internet and all of those sort of things you need when you're moving to a new city. And I'd found this apartment and I needed to get the gas and electricity connected. And the only way to do that was by writing a check to the, the, the power company. And this was the first time in my life I ever had to write a check. Um, you know, I'd sold or we'd sold companies twice in Australia. Can I ask um, how old you were at the time? I was in my mid twenties. Okay. Um, and I was looking at this checkbook that I'd got from my bank and I'd never even had a checkbook before. I'm looking at it and it's got the words on it, pay to the order of, and I'm nerdy and prone <laughs> to overthinking things. I'm like, what does that even mean? Do I put the name of the person there or I put the amount, like pay to the order of $100? Like I, yeah. I didn't know. And I didn't have internet at that point, so I couldn't just Google it. Um, so I sheepishly had to knock on my neighbor's door to ask them how to explain to someone who was coming to master, you know, do a master's degree in finance and accounting how to fill out a check. And that just seemed kind of weird that, you know, I had to put pen to paper to send money around, whereas in Australia, it was just if I wanted to send money to anyone in Australia, um, I could send it for free and it would get there the, the next day just electronically or same day electronically. And so it seemed weird that I'd moved to this land known for innovation, yet I was putting pen to paper to, to send money around. Um, but quickly I, I sort of got over checks, but then came late payment fees and overdraft fees and this realisation I was in an adversarial relationship um, with my bank. And that was a new concept to me, this concept of having to be on top of your money because if you're not on top of your money, your bank is going to you know, ding you for it. That just seems so bizarre and weird mm -hmm. that this institution who I was paying to take care of my money, I had to fight against to make sure that they didn't take more of my money than they should. So fast forwarding a couple of years from that, I, I sent an email to my then-to-be co-founder, Shamir, uh, about six years and one month ago um, today, actually, saying, let's start a retail bank. And, and that came off the back of a conversation we were having on Instant Messenger. And I actually found the, the logs for this recently <laughs> where we were sort of talking about why banking in America was so horrible. And we had this realisation that, you know, the large banks primarily make money by keeping their customers confused. They make more money from fees and charges than they do from banking. And so they have a set of incentives that are completely out of whack with what customers want. And that's just a horrible business to be in as a consumer, but it also represented to us a huge opportunity. Like there's no reason we couldn't work out why sort of economically banks had to do that. They sort of had oligopoly power um, for a bunch of reasons. They were able to get away with it and I can see why you'd want to get away with it if you can, but there was no fundamental reason why they had to do that. So we thought if we could break through that and build uh, a business that sort of gave people confidence with their money, that was a real advocate for, for individuals' financial needs and, needs and goals and dreams. Um, we could really disrupt, I hate using the word disrupt, but you know, we could really break into this market and, and compete in a really different way. And, and that was the, the impetus to, to, to sending that email saying, hey, let's do this, let's mm -hmm. start a retail bank. So what's the big difference between American banking industry and the Australian banking industry? Um, probably, two, I mean, there's a lot, but there, I'll, I'll go for two big things. Sure. The first one is the regulatory landscape. America is very much a rules-based system 
whereby the banks will do something, it'll have a negative impact, and then the regulators have to write a rule saying don't do that specific thing. And then the banks will find a new way of, uh, of screwing people over. And this cycle sort of is, has, is out of phase, whereby the regulators are 180 degrees out of phase with where banks are because the, the, the banks are sort of just operating ahead of the rules. Mm-hmm. And in Australia and a lot of other countries in the world, it's much more principles-based, whereby, you know, the, the regulators can come and say, hey, don't do that. that. That's going against the principles and the banks have learned um, not, not to, to do that. And there's a lot of nuance there, but that's one sort of broad category. The other broad category is technology. Um, the American banks, in fact, I think it was Bank of America in, I think, 1954, um, was the first sort of bank to start adopting computing technology. And because of they were early adopters of that computing technology, their, their approach to technology sort of evolved in a completely parallel universe to the rest of technological evolution. Um, you know, service-oriented architectures, PCs, network computing, distributed systems, all of this stuff didn't happen inside banks. And so the cost of banking and the cost of working with information in banks is just so hamstrung by legacy thinking and legacy cost structures that it was really hard for them to adopt uh, a lot of the cooler, you know, more powerful practices. So when you started working on Simple back in 2009, did you have a pretty good idea how difficult it would be to launch uh, online I don't know if online is the right word, bank, or could you describe your mindset as being kind of blissfully unaware? Absolutely. Like all my only experience was, you know, obviously I went to business school. I knew something about finance and banking, but really not much more than other people. My probably biggest source of knowledge at that point was two places. One was Wikipedia. Um, (laughs) Seriously, I just spent a lot of time reading about (laughs) banking on Wikipedia. But I also had that conversation with Shamir over IM where I asked him, you know, what it would take to start a bank. And he said, oh, it's, it's pretty easy. All you need is a license from the Fed and a few computers. That's the actual sentence he used. Um, and um, he was basing that on information from sort of 2005, 2006. He, he was a banking consultant, but he was operating out of the country for most of the financial crisis. And things really changed with the financial crisis and uh, it became a lot more difficult. That said, between the two of us, you know, we met at business school together. We were both competitive with each other and neither of us wanted to lose face. And when he said it was easy, he had to make it look easy. And when I said, you know, fundraising and the technology would be easy, I had to make that look easy. Mm -hmm. And so we had this really true partnership. We had stubbornness and this desire to succeed that let us sort of get through the slog of the first three years of getting this thing to launch. Okay, so well before the launch of Simple, you and your co-founder Shamir Karkal started a website that broke down the company's basic beliefs. Honesty, transparency, and respect for the customer seem to be the biggies. However, success and money has a habit of corrupting people and businesses. So here we are a handful of years later. Has it become more difficult to continue to honor that belief system? I think it's actually been a lot easier. Okay. You know, when we were doing this six years ago, you know, the core of the innovation that we wanted to have was we wanted to build a business model for banking that was aligned around what customers wanted. We, we wanted to be real strong advocates for consumers. And we believed that, you know, we had Excel spreadsheets that said that we could make it financially viable. We had a hunch that this is what people actually wanted. But we had no data showing that it was actually possible. 
um, that we'd actually be able to find sort of product market fit that would be able to get customers in a way that um, you know showed alignment with what we were trying to do. And the first three years, that was a huge struggle. And there was a lot of pressure to try and water down the vision to make it a little bit more traditional, to make it less innovative um, because it was more proven. But now that we've launched and we've had sort of massive growth, um, it's become easier to stick to our guns and say, hey, look, you know, we believe that this is the right way of doing things and we're going to keep on going down that path. And there's this sort of saying in venture capital that numbers ruin a good story. In our case, numbers have sort of proven a good story. Um, you know, we've over doubled our customer count since we were acquired. We're currently going through this phase right now of 10% month-on-month growth. Our headcount has tripled since our acquisition. And these are all just signs that not only are we sort of proving out this model, but, you know, obviously we've been acquired and our parent company believes that fundamental hypothesis that was so challenging six years ago, they now believe that that's the future for, for banking globally. And that puts us in a really great position to, to stick to our guns. And I don't know this answer, but have any copycat companies popped up? Yeah, a ton of them. And really? I think it's great. Look, you know, our, our vision is, you know, we think there's a lot of different ways that innovation can succeed in banking. We think there are a lot of different approaches. Um, there's been a couple of copycats in Europe who are sort of almost direct copycats and so be it. But what we're seeing more in America is that we went out and we went through this struggle of, of trying to raise capital for a business model that was unproven. We've proven it out and now there's great opportunities for simple type things for small businesses. There's great opportunities for simple type things for families or children and I think that's great. Our, we, we have a strong opinion that our model works well for what we're trying to do but if there are 25, 100 other models that work for different people, if it leads to a change in people's expectations for what financial services can do for them, if it leads to that change of that oligopoly, I can never pronounce that word, <laughs> oligopoly feeling where consumers are subservient to financial institutions, that's awesome. And, you know, we could use all the help that we can get. So I, I look forward to yeah. having thousands of flowers bloom in this space. So when the development or creation process for Simple surprised you, positive or negative? Probably one of the biggest early surprises, and it goes back to, to your previous question, is, you know, we had this idea of sort of centering the product around two big features, safe to spend and goals. And goals, you know, at the end of the day, are technically nothing more than a savings account, but they're presented in a really different manner. You know, one of the things we try to do at Simple is take concepts from banking and, and represent them in how, to reflect how people think rather than how banks work. And so goals is as far away from a typical savings account as, as, as you'd expect. And we'd had this built before we launched it, um, uh, before we launched Simple, but we didn't launch goals at our initial launch because we were concerned that people wouldn't get the concept, that it would just be so radically different. Um, so we spent a lot of time thinking about how to add educational content, how to maybe add a tutorial video, um, and we could never find the right thing. So one day we said, you know what, let, let's just launch it. Let's just add, launch the goals tab and see what happens. And at the end of the day, we had like millions of dollars that customers had saved up in goals or had set aside for goals. It, it sort of showed us that we were almost holding ourselves back for, for pushing the product experience. And people were really desperate. And people have learned that, you know, you can play with web technologies, you can interact in a different way. And they sort of have that expectation for us. And that was really surprising. And that allowed us to be even more confident with the sort of innovations that we wanted to. And what frustrated you in the creative development process? Probably just the amount of time it took to, to launch. Um, you know, going back to your previous question, it, it was not just getting a license from the Fed and yeah. a few computers. It was multiple years of, of hard work. And some of that was frustrating. Um, you know, 
the, the, the regulatory environment was changing dramatically at that point and just learning a lot about how Washington operates and how to sort of work within those parameters was frustrating, educational, but frustrating. Yeah. And I saw somewhere that said it took 18 months to finalize the terms and conditions for Simple. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you, you know, stay focused <laughs> for 18 months on just one thing? But that's crazy. Yeah, look, the, the, that, that one thing was one thing we wanted to stick to our guns on as well. So one of the first things I did when we agreed to start working on this is I actually went back to Australia for a vacation and I brought with me printouts of all the terms and conditions for the top 10 banks in America for like their checking account and savings accounts. I just wanted to read them all to see because they have to disclose all the tricks they do in the, the, mm-hmm. those, those things. So I wanted to read them all. And I'm not a lawyer. Um, I, I am not a big reader of legal documents, but God, that was painful reading, both from sort of the language <laughs> perspective, but also, but also seeing the tricks that they put in there. And so I said, look, you know, we're not going to do this. We're going to have a terms and conditions that are readable. And so we spent a long time just getting that right. It wasn't the only thing we were working on. Like we didn't delay launching for 18 months just because of this, but it was one of the things that just took a long time to get right. And we had principles and, and, and we just didn't want to give up on that because if we gave up on that, what else would we give up on? Yeah. So do you ever get tired? And I don't mean like sleepy, but saying I want to retire, or I'll just be a consultant. Um, I'm tired right now. I was up late lit reading The Atlantic last night. Oh. Um, <laughs> but that wasn't the question. Um, like you're, you seem I, like a pretty driven, committed person, and that can be tiring. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, it can be tiring. There are days where I, you know, fantasize about what it would be like to retire, but then I wake up and I sort of look at what our customers are saying. I look at my to-do list and my to-do list is exciting. Like the stuff that I have to do every day is exciting. The customers that I speak with sort of energize me and that's a pretty awesome job. Like I've had a, lo- I've had a really winding career path to get here. I've never felt as awesome as I have about what we're doing here. So, um, yeah, I'm sticking with it. So not to turn negative on you, but there have been a few hiccups along the way for Simple. There's an article online with the heading, Simple's growth rate in doubt after CEO accidentally emails company numbers to reporter. <laughs> Oregonian. Uh, this happened in May 2014, and then a year ago this month, while Simple was transferring transaction processors, a handful of your customers were unable to access their accounts. Simple, you know, you apologized and you gave a $50 credit to the whoever was affected. But as the CEO, what goes through your head in these situations? Two very different situations. In the first one, I'm, a, I'm the only really person to blame for that personal error. I don't think they'll just make you angry. I think that pissed me off. <laughs> no, I wasn't pissed <laughs> off. You were? Um, okay. So what happened is, is we just hired a new staff accountant, Nancy, and I was sending her a, a draft copy of a, a board presentation and she was going to go fill out the real numbers. And so I just sort of sketched in what I thought the numbers would be and I was going to send it over to her to, to fill out the real numbers. Unfortunately, this was her first week and I hit Nancy in, in, in Gmail and it auto-completed the last Nancy I'd emailed, which was a journalist, I think, at Washington Post. And so my, I sort of was like, oh, well, I felt horrible for our communications team who had to sort of deal with this situation. But the reality is there was a bad article that came out. The headline was sort of this you know, growth rate in doubt or whatever it was. A little fact, bit of an exploitation article? A little bit, but the reality was like, you know, uh, the, the numbers were draft and then a, a month later we hit record growth. We were the fastest growing bank um, on the, the west coast of America. So like, sure, fine, you have a bad article out, but the business is operating um, really well. So 
I'm not too worried about what journalists think about the, 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 the pace of growth or whatever when I have the actual numbers in front of me. Mm-hmm. Now, the second situation was really different. The, the first one was my mistake, mea culpa, whatever. The second one, I, I'm accountable as, as the leader of the company. And, you know, the fundamental thing for, for Simple is to be a consumer advocate, to, to really improve people's financial lives. And we did wrong by some of our customers. We put a lot of our customers, well, a lot of our customers, we put some of our customers in a bad position. So it was really clear for me what I had to do and what a lot of the, us in the company had to do. We put down sort of our day-to-day jobs and we went 100% of our time focused on making it right for our customers. And that's just what we did. Yeah, and the thing that I love is it seemed like once the last situation happened with the transaction processors and switching that, I believe you just wrote a blog post and said, hey, we messed up. I don't think there was any trying to hide it or manipulate it. I think it was just very blunt. Hey, this is what happened. And I, I, I just can't see like a Bank of America doing something like that. So I thought that was very interesting. You know, the, these bank failures happen sort of all the time. And this was an, another point where we had to sort of stick to our guns. A lot of banks sort of sweep under the rug technology failures because um, they believe that it scares people when they admit that they're wrong. Um, we made a mistake and we believe the right thing to do is to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was a tough call that we sort of had to push through and, and say we're going to make this statement publicly. But it was the right thing for building trust at a far deeper level. And so when you look at sort of our NPS scores compared to sort of industry customer satisfaction scores, you know, Bank of America is like at the bottom of the rankings because they just don't have that trust beyond FDIC insurance. Mm-hmm. It's a really different mindset. Um, so, yeah, it's, it was just the right thing to do. And it wasn't the only thing we did. I, you know, we spoke to lots of our customers and we gave personal messages and notes and letters to people to let them know what was going on for their individual situations. But putting it publicly was just really important for us because yeah. it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you're aware of the Sony hacking scandal. And I yep. know it's, you know, with hacking Sony versus hacking Simple would have two different repercussions. But how does Simple protect itself from hackers? I think one of the things that we sort of learned in, in, in sort of the investigation that happened um, out of the Sony hacking scandal is that a lot of companies sort of have this arrogance or hubris um, or just ignorance of, of, of the threat of, of cybersecurity risks. Um, like they were keeping files unencrypted, sitting on desktops. They didn't have the right firewalls in place. I mean, I can't remember the specifics, yeah. but there's a lot of just really bad practices. Simple is a company that was sort of born out of the internet and born out of that um, mentality. We have sort of one of our company principles is stay frosty um, in terms of security practices. And, you know, we obviously go well above and beyond just having a principle around this. Um, you know, we take accountability on this topic very seriously. It's why you see that we have, you know, great features like the mobile unlock code. Mm-hmm. We're the first bank to adopt Touch ID. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a big part of the customer experience is delivering a secure experience. So you've spoken a lot about the brand for Simple. Do you think it's harder to build a brand or to maintain one? I think it's harder to build a brand and it's even harder to rebuild a brand. Um, what you're seeing right now is... A lot of financial institutions are trying to rebrand themselves as being friendly, and that that's people see through that pretty quickly. I think it's harder to build a brand because um, for for us, we didn't set out and say this is our brand strategy. We set out and said, okay, we want to do the right things for our customers. We want to do that through technology. Therefore, we need to have a, a sort of a culture of innovation. So we put all of our attention and focus on building the right culture inside Simple. 
And when it came to sort of building a brand, it just became sort of this authentic reflection of who we are internally. And it's really hard to build a great culture. And I think we've done extraordinarily well on both fronts. We've built a great internal culture and that's reflected really honestly and really accurately with our customer communications, which then goes out to build our brand. So I feel like I've identified three main points in your career so far. Feel free to disagree. The first point I pegged for data serve, the third being sure. simple, but the second or in the middle of the group being a company called Roots Marketing. In an interview you did uh, with Startup Grind Portland, you called Root Marketing the crazy business. Why do you think you called it the crazy business? Um, so I, I have a lot of respect for, for, for what they were trying to do at Root. Um, so Root uh, was a company I joined as um, the first employee. Uh, they had two co-founders at that point, and I was still at business school. And it was a business trying to merge the worlds of financial services and marketing. Um, and the idea was to try and build a hedge fund for marketing contracts on the internet. So if you're a marketing agency looking to acquire customers, you could invest dollars in us and we'd have an arbitrage strategy. It was, it was a crazy complicated idea. But then like four other business models were attached to it at the same time. Um, the company grew way too quickly. It had a lot of that bubble 1.0 mm-hmm. mentality around it. And um, I, I learned a lot, and unfortunately, the the, the business sort of flamed out. Um, but it, it was a it was a definitely an interesting experience. You said in an interview with Tiny Rebellion, for better or worse, people's sense of self worth comes from their net worth. Where does your sense of self worth come from for you? I think it's important to look at sort of where that statement came from. Um, so, the, the the idea of self worth being connected to net worth is sort of looking at the, the, the psychology that we're trying to fix with simple. Um, I said a little bit earlier in the conversation that people have this subservient mentality um, when it comes to their relationship with financial institutions. Like if you get dinged by an overdraft fee, not only do you get the burden of the $35 financial impact, but you get this sense of guilt that, oh, I'm not smart enough to, to, to deal with my money. I'm an idiot. I have this shame around my finances. We work really hard to try and break through that feeling because we believe people are smart enough. It's just that banks have been trying to screw people over for too long, that they've sort of, they're sort of layering onto this notion of people's self-worth being tied to their net worth, this yeah. sense of guilt and subservience. And it's, it's sort of like this abusive relationship. You see it. You know, if you have friends who aren't working as a couple, you see this sort of mentality happen. And it's happening between banks and their customers. And in a capitalist society where there are a lot of questions about what self-worth means, um, that's a really abusive relationship. Um, and so, you know, what we're trying to do at Simple is is break through that. We want people to sort of have this confidence that they can do what they need to do with their money. We want people to look at Simple and, and hopefully other financial services that come in our mold as being real enablers for, for positive transformation. So I'm where totally does, dodging your question. Yeah, yeah. I was like, where does your sense of self-worth come from? Um, I, there's no wrong answer, so don't be afraid. Yeah, no, I I think it goes back to something I was saying earlier. One of the things I miss about medicine is I had this opportunity to, to -to one-to-one see a patient and have them be better. Um, I think what I'm trying to do with simple is do that. It's obviously not one-to-one, but we have an impact over, you know, 
tens of thousands of people whose lives have been positively transformed. Like, you know, I was saying earlier that I wake up in the morning, I look at the tweets that people say to us, or I look at the customer support messages, or I'll see what people say on our Facebook page. I'm like, wow, this person was able to do something great with their life. They were able to get that confidence back. That's where my sense of self-worth comes from, is, is helping people get their sense of self-worth back. How has your personal perception of money changed from today to when you started Simple or before you started Simple? Yeah, so I guess directly before I started Simple, I was working at a hedge fund um, and, you know, I'd come out of business school where they teach you that the optimum or the number one thing for, for a CEO to do is to maximize shareholder value. They teach you that self-worth equals net worth, um, not directly, but implicitly. You know, at the hedge fund, that's how people measured their success, was how much money they made for their employees, not for their employees, for, for their customers, and then as a consequence for themselves. Um, and so I guess my perception of money has changed from being a measure of success to just being just a tool I have to live my life. Okay. So you spoke at 99U in February 2014, and in that speech you had to skip one of your principles that was simply labeled confidence, not arrogance. What do those words sure. mean to you as a CEO of Simple Bank, and why is that a principle? You've really done your research. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's great to be confident uh, about something, but where it blurs into arrogance is where you don't have the data to back up your beliefs. Um, so as I said earlier, you know, we had this confidence about goals and launching goals but we didn't want to be arrogant and sort of foist it on people and say, this is how you have to, 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 to use Simple. So we launched it and the data showed that people loved it. You know, it's one of our most heavily loved features right now, but we weren't arrogant saying that we're going to force this into everyone. I think that applies across many areas um, in Simple. There's plenty of places where we believe it's great to have a point of view and not to shy away from having that point of view. But you should always be informed by either quantitative or qualitative you know, data or research. And the difference between that sort of confidence being bolstered by data is that when you're arrogant, you can intentionally shy away from information that conflicts with what you believe and you sort of just shove that stuff to the side and that doesn't help anyone. Yeah, so I'm curious, what are your future plans for Simple? Where do you see it going? Really, it's it's about growth. Um, we're growing probably on two big dimensions right now. Um, one was just in, in terms of the number of customers that we have. That's important for us because I guess going back to the self-worth question, the more people that we can positively impact, the better that is for us and the more reinforcement and the more confidence that we have that we're doing the right thing. Um, and the other area of growth for us is new financial products. Um, right now, I think we have a really kick-ass checking and savings account, but uh, we know that our customers are using goals to save up to buy houses. We know that a lot of our customers are saddled with unreasonable student loan debt. We know that our customers would love to get higher interest rates on their savings. All of these things we'd love to be able to provide, and so we're working on that as well. That sounds exciting. Yeah. And I just have a handful of questions left for you. So according sure. to the Portland Business Journal on June 18th, co-founder and CFO Shamir Karkal decided to step down and leave Simple. How has his exit affected the daily workings of Simple Bank? Obviously, I, I miss Shamir. I, I was actually spent the weekend with him and his wife and, and his kids. Um, and he was a great co-founder and now he's being a, a great dad. Um, I think Shamir has sort of an, an outsized personality and, and there's no way we can replace that around the office. But as CFO, we, ha we, we have a very healthy finance organization and so we're well placed to, to manage that. Um, and uh, he'll always be a friend and an advisor to, to the business. Great. So I think I know how you're going to answer this question, but how do you judge success? Um, by learning stuff. 
What, what, what do you think was, was going to be my answer? I was going to say what you give back to the community or to people yeah. as a whole. Yeah. That's what I was I, thinking. Yeah, that would have been the better answer. This is not my <laughs> let's, let's change take two. <laughs> no, I think back to what the first question you asked me, which is like, how do I get described? How do my parents describe me or yeah. whatever? As curious. And I think that that still sticks with me. I, I just like learning. So two more questions. If you were given a book and in that book it told the story of your life, every single event that will happen between today and your death and would detail all the happy and sad events, would you read the book? Mm, it's a tough one. Um, probably not. You don't think so? Let it be a surprise? I, this is the thing is I have so many books on my bedside table that I have to catch up with. <laughs> And if it came out in podcast form, maybe I'd listen to that, like a yeah, voracious yeah. podcast. <laughs> so if I could get the podcast of my life, maybe I'd listen to that. Do you like um, audiobooks? Yeah. They did audiobooks to listen to it? Podcast. I, podcast, podcast is the future, man. You should get into it. It's great. I, I'm, I'm trying. Um, okay, last question for you. Sure. Complete this sentence for me. Life is too short for you to what? Uh, to, to worry about small things. All right. Thank you, Josh. But before you go, let everybody sure. know where's the best place they can find you. Um, they can find me on the internet. I live on the internet. I am at I2PI um, on Twitter. Um, and you can learn more about Simple at Simple.com. Great. And I should tell everybody I'm officially a Simple customer. I'm going to move all my finances over to Simple once I pay off my credit card. So, <laughs> so a few more of us. Do you have a goal set up to pay off your credit card? Um, not on Simple. I'm putting a certain amount of money, paying it off month to month. I'm hoping to have it all paid off in like four months. So, Congratulations. That's awesome. All right. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for listening to My Way Podcast. Before you go, we depend on your financial support to keep our podcast going. Please give us your support by going to patreon.com and searching for My Way Podcast. If you'd like to say hi, please visit our Facebook page or reach out to Michael personally on Instagram, Michael Nix, or Twitter at MikeyWNix, or simply rate and subscribe. The end.